Let's take a few seconds for spiritual preparation. I think we're all very familiar with our spiritual preparation. You have just a few seconds for confession of sins or to relax a little bit and get prepared for the study of the Word of God. So let's bow our heads in prayer and then I'll open this in a moment. Dearly Father, we're thankful for the great things that you have done in our lives. We know that we truly are creatures and you are the creator. And we're thankful for those things that you have created for us. You love us even when we are uh, enemies of you, even though, even when we have absolutely no uh, interest or concern about you. And so, after we become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, after we trust in you, Father, then your love is even more so. And we're thankful for these passages of Scripture that talk to us of your love and your concern and the way that you work in our lives. We pray as we study this uh, passage this morning, Father, that we will see uh, your hand in it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Last week, I took a little bit of a a diversion, I think we could say. Not really a diversion, but um, what I wanted to do is try to uh, ensure we understood uh, the situation between Boaz and Ruth at this point in the book. And that's not to say that it won't change or that it doesn't change but simply tried to uh, establish what that position was. And then I also said uh, if, his, if Boaz's attitude was different, how might we evaluate his actions? And so we looked at that, and then from that, I also gave us some principles on what we might call, what I called, courtship. And I know from... It was right at the end of the class, and uh, there was very little time for either additional explanation, although we did it point by point. But some of my comments regarding dating was not meant to say that dating is not appropriate. It's just that it needs to be taken on with much more care and caution than uh, than we often take, because dating is today in our society, the way in which we meet others. But again, it's reduced to a rather cavalier uh, event and or activity. And I think that we've lost the perspective of what we really should be doing when it comes to dating. And um, it's not that it's inappropriate. It's not that it's something that's wrong. It's something, though, that needs to be kept within the confines of God's Word. And you might say, well, where in God's Word does it teach dating? Here. Teach dating here. <laughs> in Ruth. It's teaching dating. Uh, well, there, but there are principles that we can follow. And one that I think we often mistake is the understanding that we should not be dating someone who is an unbeliever, um, sometimes called missionary dating. You know, well, here's an unbeliever, and I think that he's really attractive, or I think she's really special, and I'm pretty sure she's not a believer, or he's not a believer. But you know, that's uh, why I'm here is to, you know bring the gospel to her, well, or him. Well, if that, in fact, is your approach, then that's wonderful, but you do that prior to going on the date with them. And you might say, well, well, that's kind of tough. Yeah, that's right, that is kind of tough, because you do what's tough up front so that you don't have to endure the pain, heartache, and soul anguish later on when you find out that they were an unbeliever because they have chosen not to be a believer. 
and uh, you're not going to be able to change their minds. And so that's something that you should know right up front, and uh, it's much easier to establish that up front so they know who you are and what you believe. So, And then beyond that, dating is just something that needs to be approached cautiously because uh, either one of the parties can immediately become more involved than the other, and now you have a situation where more than likely the person who is not enamored or in love is not going to see it necessarily as their responsibility to say, I think we need to slow this down or I think we need to come to a a right understanding of how we relate to each other. Usually it doesn't work that way. And, of course, the person who is in love doesn't want to hear that anyhow. You know, the idea, well, can't we just be friends, means, well, can't we just continue this relationship? And that's what that means. Well, we can still be friends, meaning we're not changing nothing. So, again, I approach that from that standpoint. But we are in now, we finished... Verse 14, I believe. I think we got through 14. And we're now ready to look at verse 15. So let me read um, at least as far as I think we might get today. I'll start in verse 14. Because Boaz is now speaking to her again. We finished there. But Boaz, now Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed parched grain to her, and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. Now you'll notice that Boaz doesn't overdo it here. It says that she sat with the reapers. So Boaz, again, as I tried to point out last time, if there was really a strong attraction here, he might have said, well, you can come over here and eat with me, and maybe we'll even distance ourselves a little bit so we can have a private conversation. But that's not what Boaz does. And so we continue to see that Boaz is responding in a remarkable way, but not in a way that we might find unusual now that he has encountered an extended member of the family. Uh, But she's really not a relative as far as a blood relative is concerned. So he brings her over, she sits with the reapers, and he ensures that she receives food by passing it to her himself. And she eats until she's satisfied, and then there's some left over. And we'll see that some of this that's left over is going to also be part of what she takes home. Now verse 15. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Verse 16. Also, let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So we see here twice he's going to say, first of all, don't reproach her, and secondly, don't rebuke her. So she's um, Boaz is protecting her, and I'll develop that a little bit further. Verse 17, So she gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephod of barley. Ephah of barley. 18, Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. Uh, this is... Uh, of a surprise to uh, Naomi. I mean, we're, it doesn't say, and she took it up, and they enjoyed what she had. We're, we are specifically said, Naomi sees this. She observes what she has, has gleaned. Um, and it's an unusual way, but we'll learn even more about it when we get to 19. Uh, saw what she had gleaned, so she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. Verse 19, and here we get back into narrative, and narrative is always fun. It's always fun. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today, and where did you work? And you will notice that Naomi doesn't take a breath in here to let Ruth even say anything. She just simply says, Blessed be the one who took notice of you. Well, she doesn't necessarily know that someone took notice of her necessarily, although she probably, I mean, that's understood. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked. Notice that Naomi says, where have you gleaned today? Using the word gleaned there to make sure that this is in fact the activity that was ongoing. Where have you gleaned and where did you work? Well, Ruth doesn't say where. She doesn't say where. 
she says in verse, uh, the, the second part of 19, so she told her mother-in-law whom she had worked, with whom she had worked, and said, the man's name with whom I work today, Boaz. So again, we don't have a verb in this sentence. It's a verbless clause. And that adds emphasis to our passage. And when we see, when we get there, and hopefully we'll, we'll be there today, and then even press on into 20, but when we get there, we'll see that this is the second time we've seen Boaz's name used in a verbless clause. And both times it has special meaning. And if we were, again, uh, uh, orchestrating a play here, there'd be music that would lead to that. There'd be probably a pause and then the name Boaz. And of course, as soon as Naomi hears the name Boaz, that resonates with her. didn't with, with uh, Ruth. As a matter of fact, we really don't know exactly how Ruth came by the name other than she was sitting close by and she probably heard that his name was Boaz. But as near as we know, uh, they have never been formally introduced. All right, verse 15. So that's where we're starting, verse 15. And when she rose up, when she stood up, that's what this word means, to glean, uh, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, even among the sheaves, let her glean and do not reproach her. Okay, last time we talked, I reviewed a little bit of this process of harvesting and reaping and how it was done. Uh, And we've seen in our context, in in the grammar of what we have here, we know that, first of all, Boaz probably is employing two different uh, teams. The first team is out front going through the stand of grain, and they're either using probably hand sickles or... Uh, a one-hand sickle grabbing the grain and cutting it, or maybe the scythe that uh, is a full swing, and they can lay it down and just keep moving. And that's probably the men going through first. And then a second team of women are coming behind, and more than likely there's two ways of doing this. They can either gather it up into bundles and maybe even tie it into bundles, or they simply gather it into stacks, we might say. And our text doesn't tell us, and uh, reading historical reading says that they can do it either way. But what would happen is somehow we're cutting the grain, the harvest, we're uh, either bundling it or stacking it, and then it's going to be taken from the field to another location where the next uh, activity is going to be the threshing of it. And the threshing of it is it's sep- trying to separate it from the stalks and the chaff. And then later on, they'll even go further as they crush it and get the, uh, the grain out of the husks. And they w- will talk, we'll say they winnow it. They throw it up in the air and let the wind blow the lighter chaff away from it. But out in the field right now, we think we have uh, two teams. The first team is the men going forward, cutting the, the grain, then the women coming behind. And what I'll, I think to facilitate the understanding of this is we'll say that they're gathering it and binding it into bundles. Because I think the sheaf can be seen in either one of those regards, but let's say they're binding it and leaving it in bundles. And then behind them, and usually at at somewhat of a distance, we'll have the gleaners because the owners and those who are working in the field don't want them up there amongst them. They are are like a third element. I think I drew this last time. They're the third element in the field, and the fields, again, were not necessarily always real clearly marked. They would sometimes have a stone or a marker at one end and a stone and a marker at another, and that's how they would outline their field. Sometimes they would have stone fences, but often often not. Sometimes there would be a road that went through there, uh, but we don't, we don't know for sure what we have here. So there might be one team, let's say they're going this way, one team is working their way in this direction. The next team is behind them, uh, staying away, of course, from the, the cutting of uh, the action of the cutting. And then behind them would be the gleaners. And I've probably put them a little close here, but you, know, you, you have a, a good idea of what's happening here. The gleaners would be back here, and they're probably individually working along behind them as they go in this direction. 
This would be, in this case, the men up front and the women behind. So that's what we have. There is, um, so the picture that we have here is Boaz has got a fairly good group. And I think, probably better understood, these are not people that maybe would uh, uh, belong to him. They're talked about, uh, it's just the way the Hebrew describes it, but they're also probably hired from the, the local community. And that is also possible. Uh, the emphasis here in this verse, verse 15, and when she, ro- she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men. The emphasis in this next phrase, it says, let her glean even among the sheaves. The emphasis, because it comes first in the sentence, and it could very well easily be forceful, but at least it's emphasis because it's at the beginning of the phrase, is even among the sheaves. So he's not simply saying, okay, uh, let her glean amongst the sheaves. He starts his comment by saying, even among the sheaves. So this is unusual. This is out of the ordinary. This is not how we normally do business. So Boaz is making a point, and he puts it at the first of the sentence to not only say, this is a little different, but I'm emphasizing it as well. And this is also a difficult uh, phrase to trans- translate because it has this, the word actually has the sense of between, between the sheaves. I'm going to translate it among the sheaves, but uh, it's translated differently in different texts, and quite frankly, there are some who are just not real sure how this works. And again, depending upon what the sheaves are here, just the sliced uh, piles, or if they are in fact bound, we have a little bit different view of what's happening. But Boaz says, to, says, even among the sheaves, even between the sheaves, among the sheaves, let her glean. And so, if we didn't understand it before, uh, when we, uh, before verse 16, by his instructions, we'll see that Boaz is going now well beyond the bounds of just letting someone glean. Uh, the normal way that they would glean. And you also need to see that he's still saying glean. He's not saying, okay, she's now a reaper. Because she's not a reaper. She's not going to work for him. She's not going to take what uh, she collects and give it to Boaz. She's going to take what she collects and keep it. None of the other reapers are doing that. But she's working with the reapers. So we have a true anomaly in this group. She's last time we were, we we saw that she, she's she's moving with the females. So she's up here in this group with women, but everybody else is doing something different than what she's doing. They're all binding the sheaves and walking along and letting them go. She's coming along and picking them up for herself. So there's a distinct difference here. If anybody was watching this, they'd say. I think, I think we're a little inefficient over here. You know, there's, we're out of sequence here somehow. And others who are gleaning are, you know, they, they notice what's happened. She was back here in the morning with them and now she's up here. And so, therefore, we're also going to see these continued instructions from Boaz to, to those who are working in these two teams. Because gleaners needed to keep their distance. And if they got up here, they would be told, get it, get back. We're still working the field. All right? We're not quite done yet. You know, we're leaving enough for you, but get out of here. Back off. And so Boaz makes sure that that's not happening up here. <clears throat> so we can see that Boaz is truly going beyond the bounds of just being generous and compassionate to the poor or the destitute. He's truly being being kind here and generous. He tells his workers that he's allowing Ruth to move among the sheaves, these cut stalks, among the crew as if she was one of them, so she can more easily harvest grain for Naomi and herself. So I think it's easier for us to see as the women are gathering them, binding them, and leaving them, Naomi, uh, Ruth is working right up in here with them. Uh, I, I imagine that Ruth is probably not trying to get ahead of them. She's not trying to gather and bundle for herself, but she's working right there with them. Again, 
He uses the word glean, so she's still seen as picking up the loose stocks and the grain that's left by the female workers. So that hasn't changed, and I think we need to understand that hasn't changed. He still, uh, and he will make an advance on this in our verse 16. So when we get to verse 16, we see him even change that. So initially, Boaz gave instructions to his young men in verse 9. Back in verse 9, he gives his first instructions to the young men. Verse 9, he says to Ruth, Let your eyes be on the field, the men, let your eyes be on the field, which they reap. And these are the men. We can tell this by because it's a masculine plural, which they reap, the men reap, and go after them. We saw that this is feminine plural. So we see here there's our two teams. So keep your eyes on the field where the men are working and follow the women over here that are going to go after them. And then he says, have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? So we already, here's our first guidance to the young men. Uh, not to touch her. And the word there means to touch and to strike. But he's telling them to uh, uh, not to touch them. So that's his first instructions. He says, don't drive her from the immediate area where, the, where they are working. Don't touch her. So she's going to be working up here. I don't want you to touch her. Don't drive her from this area because it's possible that with some maybe aggressive gleaners, that would happen. They'd come up and they'd have to go back and drive them out of there. But he says, don't touch her. So while I can't say that that would be common action, we get that sense that that could very well be the case, that the men could be up there cutting and look around and say, oh, they're getting a little too close, and somebody would go back and say, get out of here, and drive them, drive them back a little bit. So uh, she's not stepped out of her place. That's what he wants them to know. She's not stepped out of her normal place as a worker or as a gleaner, but she is now being permitted. She hasn't stepped out of it. She's permitted. She's permitted to work in that area with the female workers. So she's working with the female workers on Boaz's crew. So he's saying to them, don't think you need to chase her out of this reaping area. That's the point there, I think, in verse 9. But now Boaz, in verse 15, takes his warning to his young men a step further. He says, don't shame her or don't insult her or humiliate her. And that's the next phrase we use. So they're not to touch her. They're not to drive her out of there. They're also not to shame her, insult her, or humiliate her. And I think the reason Boaz tells his young men not to shame her, meaning not to mentally or verbally mistreat her, is so that if, in fact, there is some indignation here, or maybe some jealousy or resentment towards Ruth because of the special treatment she's receiving, they are not going to demonstrate it. It's not going to become part of their actions. It's not going to boil to the surface and be used against her. And you can see how this would occur. And, you know, just reading this, we may not get this sense, but these people are probably hired and they are being paid. But they're being paid, and then once they're paid, they probably get an opportunity to buy grain. But what Ruth is doing is she's just coming out here and gathering grain, and she's going to leave with this grain. So those who have been out there working for this for for hire for wages, you know, are probably what's going on here, and there can be some resentment, a little bit indignant about. Kind of shortcut, isn't it? You know, and so I think Boaz again understands that. So he gives his second warning: I don't want her to be. I don't want you to say anything to her. No snide remarks. You know, well, who are you? Who do you think you are? You know, up here. And there's all kinds of, of things that could have been said, but he wants to make sure that she's not going to be verbally, mentally, or verbally mistreated uh, because of the special treatment attention that she's receiving, because it could very easily be there. Boaz's crew. His crew of workers knew she was to be treated as one of them, and this may have caused some resentment because of her, what we might call her sudden rise in status. First, of course, and this is just kind of two points I'd like to make here. First, she's not to be viewed as a lowly scavenger. I mean, that's what she was. She came to the field. She's a, she's a scavenger. She's out there as a gleaner. But she's, not, she's no longer to be viewed as a lowly scavenger, Although she arrived on the scene in the early morning, 
And that is precisely what she was. She came to the field. She's a gleaner. She's a scavenger. That's what she's there to do. The Mosaic laws we've seen makes allowances for that. That's how the destitute, that's how those without work, those, that's how uh, anyone who n- was in need could be uh, helped by the nation, by the tribe, by individuals. And secondly, there was to be no resentment towards her because she was now receiving special privileges. And it only took her one morning to get to special privileges. She arrives, she works hard in the morning, but now she's receiving special privileges. Uh, As I was working on this, it reminded me of a phrase my mother used to periodically use. And she would say, don't think you you can just waltz in here in the last minute and be treated like the cat's pajamas. Well, as a young boy, I knew what a cat was, and I knew what pajamas were, but I don't think I had any idea what cat's pajamas were. And of course, I didn't know how to waltz. So, But it was a phrase that she periodically used, and I can still remember her saying that. Don't think you can just waltz in here at the last minute and expect to be treated like the cat's pajamas. Of course, I, I had an idea what she meant, but... Anyhow, that was a, a wonderful phrase that I remember. But anyhow... Boaz knew that that would be the normal human reaction, and he wants to nip it before it begins. And, of course, that took me back to Barney Fife and Mayberry RFD or Andy Griffith show. Remember how he used to say that? We need to nip it, Andy. We need to nip it in the bud. Right now, we need to nip this. All right. Well, we're about halfway through here, and I thought we needed liven this up a little bit. Barney was always one of my favorite characters. So now we have twice. We have twice Boaz has given instructions to those working for him not to chase her off or to abuse her because her privileges or the fact that she's a Moabitess or that they might think that she should be back with the gleaners. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons here why there could be some normal human resentment. And, of course, that's not what Boaz wants to occur. So, in verse 16, he will make a third statement. Verse 16. Verse 16, he says, and he advances on what, he has just done, what he's just said. Also, let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it. So we've dropped it purposefully, intentionally, we could say. Then he says, leave it, that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So he's talking to the group as a whole now. He wants them all to understand that I want her to be taken care of. And of course, again, we could this could be seen as something, um, uh, you know, personally between him and her. But I don't think that's the case. Uh, Boaz, I believe, is simply again going above and beyond what would be expected in generosity, and it certainly exceeds what we would call just common business sense. This is not the way a, a businessman would see to make, to make a profit here. So it's beyond business sense in giving away the harvest because he says, leave extra for her. Leave extra for her. And he's not just giving it to her, although he could have done so, but Boaz does know that Naomi needs this assistance as well. And, of course, Boaz doesn't know the end of the story. We know the end of the story. And so we immediately assume here that, well, he's providing us extra assistance because down the road here he has plans. Well, we don't know that. Boaz is simply being truly generous, I believe. I think that's his, his entire intention. At this point, he's doing all... Uh, at this point, he is doing all he is doing is taking care of an extended family member who truly is in poverty. But you'll notice he never changes her true position of gleaning. She's still gleaning, and again, I think that's for two for two reasons. He says she must work for what she's going to receive. So uh, she's gleaning. They're making it easier for her. Uh, but he's not going to violate the principle that she must be a responsible part of society and work for the grain. He never changes that. She's going to have to work for it. He's going to make it easier for her, but she's still going to have to work for it. He's not going to destroy her initiative or her sense of responsibility. So we see that Boaz says, I want her up here with the reapers. 
I want her having an opportunity to take grain that's easily left for her, but she's still gleaning. I'm not just going to take her over here and hand it to her. She's still going to work for it. And then for the third time, Boaz warns those working for him not to mistreat her. This time he uses a stronger word for correction. Uh, and it's the word that we would see for correction in maybe a harsh or a stern manner. Uh, we see this word used when he says, and do not rebuke her. It says, leave it for her that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. And it's a word for strong admonition. Uh, we see this same word used back in Genesis 37.10. Genesis 37.10, we see this same word used. It's used other places, but I thought this was a, a, good, a good place to use it because it places us in a situation uh, that is somewhat similar. Genesis 37.10. Joseph has had a dream about uh, what he believes is his uh, family, his brothers, his father, and his mother. And he tells his dream to his brothers, and of course there is resentment there. Um, They hate him for it. And then he tells his father. In verse 10 it says, So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream? Again, what? This dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? The answer is, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's what's going to happen. And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Well, this is his father rebuking him. So it was a very strong admonition. It's not something that uh, and it, could, it could be used even in different ways. But we see that this was within a family. Uh, he, uh, Jacob was probably pretty put out, pretty resentful over that fact. But anyhow, we see that Boaz has gone to great lengths to protect her from those around her. He has the foresight and the consideration to realize that the normal, what the normal human reaction would be to someone showing up and suddenly being placed in a position where she had previously not been. Boaz understands human nature here. He says, I know exactly what's going to happen. And so all the way through this text, this context, he is talking to Ruth, He's talking to those who are working for him, and he's setting up a condition where she can work. Now, like I said last time, he's probably the first one to have this uh, anti-sexual harassment policy. But that's what he sets up. That's what he has here. Boaz knows the, the abuse that a person like Ruth, who arrived at the field uninvited, Unrelated, I mean, she's unrelated to any of these people here. They don't know who she is. She walks up, she does ask, but she really is uninvited and unrelated. And he understands what kind of abuse she might receive from the local citizens who had been, again, properly hired to come out and do the work. It's just, and again, I don't think we often see that, but that's what's happening here. We've got legitimate laborers up here trying to do their job, and suddenly there's somebody off the elbow there, you know, picking this up, picking up the grain, the stalks, and not only that, but you know, suddenly Boaz has said, you know, has given the instructions to allow this to happen, and so it's just normal. Even if we have a great deal of respect as workers for Boaz, we still are going to resent this. So Boaz goes to great lengths to make sure that they are not going to feel that way. Boaz unequivocally lets his workers know that they are to have no part in any kind of abuse or mistreatment to Ruth. They will not harm her physically nor shame her psychologically with any unkind remarks about her alien status or her low class or the fact that she's moved up rather fast or that she's somehow the boss's pet or anything else. So she will seek. She's not going to seek to glean anywhere else. She's going to stay right there. So we see that at least three times he indicates that those with whom she comes in contact are not to cause her any trouble. He simply removes any possible reaction to her by his servants. And he does it in all of these ways, this remarkable ways of moving her up, leave grain for her, don't drive her off, no resentment here, and there's not going to be any abuse. We're not going to do any of that. And of course, the way it's said is it's easy for us to tell that it's emphasized. Now, an interesting verse that we should notice 
here is Proverbs 22.9. This is Boaz. A proverb. Not a promise, but it's a proverb. So we go back to Proverbs 22.9. Proverbs 22.9. To see a verse really about Boaz. Proverbs 22.9 says, He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. And that's precisely, you know, this could have been easily written about Boaz, because that's what he's done. He's been generous to her, and he's given his bread to her as well. They've, they've eaten, and Boaz is, is doing what, he, uh, what that proverb exclaims. All right, verse 17. Verse 17 says, Back in Ruth 2. So she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. 18, and she took it and went up into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. Okay, let's get verse 17 in here uh, before we get to 18. She gleans. Again, Ruth continues the day. And I like to kind of use this word. She's, she's out there as a scavenger. She's still scavenging in the field for grain and she does it until evening so Ruth goes back out she's been there early in the morning and she's now going to work until evening and then in the evening we see or somewhere in that vicinity she probably takes a stick or something similar to that and begins to beat the grain from the heads of barley and we would call this again threshing it so she She's not gathering it and binding it to leave it there for the next step in the process, which is going to be threshing. But what she's doing is this whole process is happening for her right here. So she's going to now thresh the grain. So she probably uses a stick or something similar to that, whatever she might be able to find, or maybe it was provided for her, to separate the grains from the heads of barley and probably the grains from the husks as well, because... She doesn't want to carry the stocks from the field. Let's leave those there. And if it's possible, she's not going to carry any more than she needs from the field. And so that's what she's doing. And in this way, again, the stocks are left in the field. And just the grain is carried away. Again, we don't have a lot of detail as to how she did that. But again, har- uh, threshing is the next step in the harvesting chain, the uh, harvesting process, and she knows what to do, and she does it. Now, even though, and again, this, I'm going to emphasize the fact that she stayed there and worked the rest of the day. She worked until evening. Even though she'd been surprised by the remarks, by this sudden turn of events, Ruth is really not distracted. She's not adversely affected by her extraordinary treatment. I don't, I, I don't know what some of us would have done had we been able to receive the leftovers at lunch. And we've worked hard all morning. We've been given these leftovers. We might go home right then. We might say, this has been a good day. Better day than I thought. And I'm going home to tell Naomi. But she doesn't. Uh, Provision has been made for her. She goes back out and she continues to glean. And she does it until the evening. So she's not affected by this really extraordinary, uh, unusual turn of events. She goes back to work and she finishes the day of work. She's a full work day, goes right back to work. Again, others might have been overly impressed with their good fortune, having taken what they'd received and departed for the day, not Ruth. She keeps the events in perspective and remains focused on what what needs to be done. Ruth is still focused here. She's not focused on herself but on the job at hand and Naomi's need at home. I think she remains humble and she remains committed. I think that's easy to see in in Ruth. I don't think we should overlook that. Now, what did she actually receive here at the end of the day? We're told that she has an ephah of barley. And we can do uh, quite a bit of research here, but at the end of the day, we're going to have a little trouble nailing this down specifically. Uh, by comparison of Scripture, we can approximate what an ephah was. And even though we're going to go back to Ezekiel 45.11 and see what this says, scholars simply don't 
uh, agree as to how much this is. Uh, some say this ephod, ephah is going to be on a fairly large size. Others are a little bit more moderate. But let's go back to Ezekiel. Let's go back to Ezekiel where this is discussed. Ezekiel, right behind Jeremiah and just before Daniel. So we're looking for Ezekiel 45.11. An interesting passage that the Lord decided to provide for us when He was talking about being fair in business practices and weighing, weighing items. Verse 9 says, Thus says the Lord God, Enough of princes of Israel. Remove violence and plundering. Execute justice and righteousness and stop dispossessing my people. In other words, taking from them what doesn't belong to you. Uh, Dispossessing my people, says the Lord. Verse 10, You shall have honest scales, an honest ephah, and an honest bath. Now, this doesn't mean taking a shower, getting cleaned up. But the bath is a liquid measure. And so he's now saying what the equivalence would be. Verse 11, The ephah, the dry measure, and the bath shall be of the same measure, so that the bath contains one-tenth of a homer, and the ephah one-tenth of a homer. Their measure shall be according to the homer. And that the Hebrew word there is homer, but uh, we'll see. You can see in other passages, just called an omer, but it's the same thing. It's just that some in their English translations have brought the rough breathing Homer over, and others have just left it off. And the first vowel we have really there, the first letter is an is an O, an omer. So, what do we have so far? Well, we're told that one tenth of an omer was an amount of grain that a donkey could probably easily carry and frankly we're not going to get a lot much a lot closer here uh, I don't and, and and so the estimate is that she probably has somewhere in the vicinity of about 30 pounds some have estimated up to 50 but I I don't really think that that 50 is legitimate here so uh, I I think she probably has somewhere in the vicinity of maybe 30 pounds uh, and again I don't know if that's really accurate because 20 pounds of grain would even be hard for her to carry. I mean, 20 pounds is a lot of weight. Uh, this is also 13 uh, kilograms. But anyhow, somewhere between 20 and 30 pounds, and 20, I think, most scholars would say is probably on the light side. Uh, 50 is on the heavy side. But um, instead of trying to nail it down specifically, I think what we're trying to say here is that she has a lot. This is a lot more than anyone normally would walk away from a field having just been gleaning it. I think that's, instead of wrestling with specifically what that is, I think that's what we can say. Anyhow, this is an extraordinary amount of grain, and it demonstrates really an extraordinary amount of work on her part for one day. This is one person, one day, and she has 30 pounds, or let's just say an extreme amount of grain. And the question is, well, why does she have so much? And of course, as I've just said, it was hard work, yes, but also because Boaz has been extremely generous to her. She's had the opportunity to gather these, uh, this much grain. Boaz has been extremely generous to her. I think it's also a testimony to the workers who follow Boaz's instructions because they, have, they also allow her to accumulate this much grain. Boaz has told them, you know, Make it easy for her, but we're going to go on beyond even making it easy. We're going to leave her grain and stocks here so that she can, she can pick it up and she can go. She can take what she needs. Now, she's going to take this, and that's what we see. She's going to haul this, she's going to haul this very heavy amount of grain back to Naomi. So now's when the fun begins. And the last time we saw Naomi, she had, she had said, yes, you may go work, but we don't know what her condition was at that time. Um, we sense that she probably was still bitter. You know, Ruth gets up the next day after they return, or a day or so, whenever it was be, probably, I think, right away, and says, uh, I would like to go out and work in the field where I can, I can find work. Well, glean in a field where I can find work. And it was just prior to that that we saw that Naomi was very bitter. 
very bitter towards the Lord, and also treating those around her in a resentful way. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter, is what she said. So she's going back to Naomi, who is possibly still either a lot bitter or a little bit bitter and resentful. So the success of this unwanted daughter-in-law will now, I think, help shock Naomi back to reality. Remember, she didn't even want her to come with her. Now she's going to come back and she's going to demonstrate a principle to Naomi. Verse 18. Then she, Ruth, took, and the the implication here is it, and I'm going to work my way through all these pronouns that we have in the the, uh, English. Then she, Ruth, took it up and went into the city. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, saw what she, Ruth, had gleaned. So she, Ruth, brought out and gave to her, Naomi, what she, Ruth, had kept back, or what had remained to her. Then it says, after she, Ruth, had been satisfied. So what we see here is that Ruth brings all this back, and she's probably, after all this work, is still hungry, so she's going to keep some of it so she can eat, and then she's going to give all the rest of it to Naomi. So, Ruth hauls her day's labor home, shows it to her mother-in-law, then measures out what she needs and gives the remainder to Naomi. So she brings it back, and she doesn't say, well, you've treated me so swell these past few days, I'll give you some. You know, this is what I've worked hard for. I think I'm going to put this in the refrigerator for later, or I'm going to store it somehow. This is what I've earned, and this is what I've worked for. But she doesn't do that. She comes back, and she takes just a little bit of it, and then says, Naomi, here, this is for the household. So she continues to recognize Naomi as the, the authority in the house. Her mother-in-law is her leader and the, the person to whom she uh, reveres and uh, owes her allegiance. So she gives it to her. She uh, gives what, what uh, she doesn't need to Naomi. So, now it doesn't come out here in verse 19, but in verse 18, but in verse 19 we'll see that Naomi is shocked. Naomi is very shocked. She may have expected, what, I don't know, five pounds, ten pounds, uh, maybe at the most, but certainly not 30 pounds, not 13 kilograms of grain. Naomi's not dumb, so she immediately wants to know what happened. Now, she, she knows she probably didn't go out and somehow find the money and buy it. She wants to know what happened. How in the world did this happen? And that's what we'll see in verse 19. But first of all, let me have four observations here. Four observations as we come out of verse 18. First of all, Ruth is industrious. I mean, Ruth gets there from Moab with Naomi, and the first thing she says is, I... I I need to go out and do some gleaning. And she doesn't just do some gleaning. She goes early in the morning. She works hard. She's unexpectedly given something special, but it doesn't go to her head. She remains humble. She goes out the rest of the day, and she works the rest of the day. And that's probably how most gleaners would work. And this is a, we don't, it's, this is a tough job. We're not, gonna, we're not going to get much. So we're going to work all day, and that's exactly what she does. She is industrious. Hard work is not, and a principle we can learn from this, is that hard work is not antithetical to trusting God or to grace. You know, God may grace us out, as we say. We may receive grace from God, but that doesn't mean we don't work hard. Ruth is still right out there working. Boaz is blessed her, but she's still industrious. She's still working hard. Hard work is not antithetical to trusting God or grace. You know, some people think that, you know, after that, it's easy street or something. Secondly, Ruth kept what she needed and gave the rest to Naomi. So secondly, Ruth kept what she needed and gave the rest to Naomi. Naomi receives the larger portion. Ruth is the one that's been blessed. Naomi gets the larger portion takes us back a little bit to Lot and Abraham. Abraham's the one that's blessed. Lot gets the largest portion. But we're going to see down the road, of course, Naomi 
is not Lot. She doesn't have that same attitude. She's going to turn here rather rapidly. But even in this, this situation where Naomi is bitter, but Naomi, uh, Ruth is just doing her job, Naomi gets the larger portion. Ruth is generous, is generous and shows no sign of resentment towards Naomi, even after all the bitterness. She doesn't demonstrate any sense of resentment towards Naomi, even after all the bitterness. She comes home, she gives her the most, the larger portion. Thirdly, God's grace satisfies both Ruth and Naomi with more than enough. So God's grace satisfies both Ruth and Naomi with more than enough. You know, when God provides, God provides enough. And He provides here more than enough. He didn't provide just enough for Ruth. He didn't provide just enough for Ruth and maybe Naomi. He provides more than enough. God's grace satisfies both Ruth and Naomi with more than enough. See, there was a time when they were both without. They were being tested. There was a test going on here. There was a time when they were both tested. They were without. But the test provided the basis for appreciation for what they would soon receive. And so they now have a great appreciation, or we'll see that Naomi does, will have a great appreciation for what God has provided. And the test probably provided the basis for that appreciation. And four, we're going to see that this, the Lord, in the Lord's provision, this unusual abundance causes Naomi to be amazed at Ruth's productivity. And we might say it's going to spark a conversation. Ruth comes home with all of this grain and it's going to cause Naomi to be amazed at her productivity and to spark a conversation because that's exactly what happens. If Ruth had come back with very little or hardly enough for both of them, then Naomi would have said, well, that looks like your average day of gleaning out there. But the conditions that God allows or God creates turns the situation. Verse 19, And her mother-in-law said to her, verse 19, And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today? (laughs) Where in the world have you been, girl? Can't you even see her say that? Where have you gleaned today? And where did you work? And as I said before, without letting her say anything, Naomi is so astounded by this, she says, Blessed be the one who took notice of you. Blessed is of the one who took notice of you. Uh, the translation there, blessed be the one who took notice of you, is, is, a, is a, it's a participle, so it's actually continuous action. May he be continually blessed, is what she's saying. May the one who took notice of you be continually blessed, you know, because of what he's done here. Um, at this point, Naomi, of course, simply doesn't know with whom she worked. Um, there's no way for her to know. Uh, Ruth hasn't had a chance to say anything. She's hardly, probably out of breath, lugging all of this grain back to the house or wherever they're staying. So she says, where did you glean and where did you work? And the questions are almost repetitive. I mean, it's, it, that's, that's pretty much what it says, but they're really repetitive, showing Naomi's astonishment, I think. What she's doing is saying, where, where could you have done this? Where in the world could this have happened? And that's the kind of astonishment that she, she's saying. And before Ruth can even answer, Naomi breaks out in a spontaneous exclamation of blessing upon the person, whoever it was, that took care of her. I mean, she has no idea what happened. She just says, bless whoever this is that took care of you. Whoever it was with whom you worked, may the Lord bless him. And again, I think she would never have dreamed in her wildest imagination that Ruth would come home with so much. If the truth were known... She would not have been surprised if she came home empty-handed. Then again, she doesn't know anybody. She's a Moabitess. Uh, near as we know, there's no relative out there that uh, where she can go glean. So she wouldn't have been surprised if she came home empty-handed. 
And her first question makes us wonder if she was also almost making sure that she was gleaning. Where did you get this? But anyhow, we can see Naomi's thinking somewhat along this line. I've gleaned before. I've seen people glean before. I've heard of people gleaning before. But I've never seen this much. This is unreal. And that's what she's saying. I've never seen this much gleaning, this much grain, from one person working one day gleaning. Now, it's just unbelievable. And so she asks in amazement, where was this done? So she gets you know, to the heart of the question, where? And we'll notice, as I said before, that Ruth doesn't really answer that question, where? But she more dramatically answers, who? She doesn't say where. She says who. And again, as I said before, she probably knows who because she's heard the name during the day. As far as we know, Boaz didn't say, I'm, I'm Boaz. He was never... Uh, as near as we can tell, he was never really trying to take credit for what he did. He doesn't, doesn't say, I'm sort of hoping that you go home and you tell Naomi who I am. That, wasn't, that doesn't appear to be his attitude. He doesn't seem to have said that. Okay. Ruth then says, The name of the man with whom I work today, Boaz. And as I said, this is the second time we've seen his name. I mean, it's actually been, it was mentioned a couple times in the beginning of this chapter. But it was mentioned in relationship to uh, what, was, what was happening. What we see here in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 2, was this is how we started the, uh, our, this was our introduction to Boaz. And I made a significant point about this because we said in verse 2, Verse 1 of chapter 2, there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great character, I think it says, of the family of Elimelech. And so, Ruth doesn't know this. Naomi may know it, but she's forgotten it, or at least it's not on her mind. So this is the narrator telling us this, providing us this information, long before uh, it's... uh, really necessary in the story, but she, he gives it to us now, or God the Holy Spirit does. And so it says, of the family of Elimelech, his name, Boaz. Again, verbless clause. And so it's announced in a very dramatic way. And that was when I said if we were doing a, a play, we probably would have a pause, we'd probably have the appropriate music, and then the name Boaz. Well, for whatever reason, that's exactly... How Ruth says, the man's name with whom I work today, Boaz. And so, again, we see that this is introduced in a special way. The name, at the time, the name resonated at the time with us when we first heard it. Because that's the way it was supposed to be. That's how it was introduced. It was Boaz, something special. And now it resonates with Naomi. This name not only resonated with us, even though we didn't know who it was, but it was presented that way. Now it's done the same with Naomi. And she's probably thinking, Oh, Boaz. Nephew Boaz. Or however she's related to him. The lights go on in Naomi's head. Boom. She will recognize the name and immediately realize that Ruth has not just stumbled onto anybody. As a matter of fact, she hasn't just stumbled onto Boaz either. She recognizes that this isn't a chance encounter, but that God's hand is and has been working behind the scenes to bring this situation to occur. Because we're going from verse 19 to verse 20, and Naomi has a dramatic change. And I think it's the grain and Boaz. The grain... Boaz and maybe the way that Ruth treats her and giving her the, all the excess here. So Naomi immediately, it hits her. She will once again realize that God has never left them and that he was always dealing with them. And he was dealing with them in a word that she used before, and that's chesed. He's dealing with them in this faithful, loyal love. And the entire procedure of bringing them back to Bethlehem is part of God's faithfulness. Because in verse 20, 
see, we go from 19. I think I have to read these two together for us to see the, get the impact. Verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today? And where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked. And you'll notice the, the author and God the Holy Spirit doesn't let it go there. He doesn't just say um, I'm gonna, that, he, that, he, that she reported the name. It goes on and says, The man's name with whom I work today, Boaz. Verse 20. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed he, Boaz, of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness, his faithful, loyal love to the living and the dead. And the word who here, blessed be he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. The closest antecedent of who, and there's, a, there's some discussion here, it, the who, is the who Boaz or is the who God? The closest antecedent is the Lord. And so I believe that that's what it is. Blessed be he of the Lord, who the Lord has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, this man is a relationship of ours, one of our close relatives. And so we can see that immediately Naomi recognizes, again, the Lord. And she uses the word Yahweh here. And he has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And next week when we come back, we'll pick that up in verse 20. And then we see in verse 20 at the end of this verse, we're going to be introduced to our one of the main concepts here in this book, the Goel, the, what a close relative is. And so we'll come back next week and we'll take a look at verse 20 and I think possibly finish this, this chapter. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the lessons that are replete through this, uh, this text, this narrative. We're thankful for the generosity and the uh, compassion of Boaz, but really the demonstration of his character. We're thankful for the character that we also see in Ruth. And throughout this, Father, we're thankful for the opportunity that we have to see how you are working your plan in their lives. And we're thankful, Father, that we also see Naomi, who has had many hardships in her life, coming around to understanding that it is the Lord who has not abandoned his kindness, his loyal love, and that he never does. And she now understands that. And so, Father, we're thankful for these principles and these truths. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.